0: in mind let's turn in our Bibles now to James chapter 4 as we continue in this book um, you know I've enjoyed going through the book of James but I have to admit there have been things in each passage that are kind of painful and one of the home fellowship leaders was mentioning to me this week boy I've been getting beat up by James a lot I hope I hope this week's an easy one And I said, well, this one's the one that says, lament and mourn and weep. (laughs) Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So I'm afraid it's not going to get a lot better. But if God's going to tell us how to get right, he has to tell us how we're messing up. And so that's what he does. But this passage that we're looking at this morning ends with God lifting us up. And so we should respond to what his reminders are by having things get better for us that's what god wants to do in our lives here in chapter 4 james calls his attention to the whole issue of who's in charge who is god who has a right to make the decisions concerning our lives and this is a struggle for all of us what makes it doubly true is that the truth is we don't even know what we want you know our james talks about the fact that we have this conflict even inside of us. What we want contradicts with what we want so often. And so here he is, you know, introducing that and, and citing that as being a part of the problem. You know, the Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychotherapy, said that after studying women for 30 years, he has one question. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and the truth is, for... A lot, of, a lot of women, it's the same when they look at men. What in the world do you want? And the truth is, when I look myself in the mirror sometimes, I go, what do you want? Because what I want conflicts with what I want a lot of times. The other night we went to El Torito Bar and Grill, and I really want to be healthy and to eat in a way that will help me to be healthy but I really want those tortillas with butter melted on them and salsa in them. And there's a conflict there. In that case, I won. I ate one of them, and I did okay. But uh, there have been plenty of days when I kept, uh, you know, more of the tortillas. (laughs) And for most people in their lives, they, they want things that often contradict what they want. There's a battle that's waging within. And so... Here, James addresses that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, people who want to be married, but they also want to cheat? Those conflict. My wife really wants to help me when I'm doing mechanical things. Yesterday was a plumbing day, and she really wants to help, and she's full of advice, and (laughs) it really doesn't... Well, uh, yesterday she did help hugely um, by leaving, but... (laughs) But she really wants to help, but it's like, you, you don't know anything about this, so you're probably not going to think of something that I'm not going to think of. And, and so James, here in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members within your own body? the the word there well desires for are in italics because they aren't in the original the word there for pleasure and he says basically the pro- the problems that you have on the outside come because of the this hedonistic the the greek word there for pleasure is the word from which hedonism comes from it means you feel good and he says the problem is you want to feel good and that is battling within you because of this conflict of what feels good and so he says you lust that is you the the word there is a is a word that just means you really you know get into it you get passionate you really want this and he says you do that you get all motivated and striving for something and, and yet You don't have it. And you murder and you covet. The word for covet there is the word zelao, which is a word that means you get zealous. So the word for lust earlier is a word epithumia, which means to breathe hard. So he's going, you're getting all worked up. You're getting all heated up, but you don't have. You can't get it. You fight and you war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your hedonas you know, on your pleasure. So he says, here's the problem. You're conflicted even within yourself. You don't even know what you want. You sit down and look at a menu and you can't even pick what you want to eat. And yet you are trying hard to make yourself feel good. You're trying hard to find a life that's in that sweet spot where it's really kind of clicking, where it's really working. And he goes, even your prayers, you're confused. A lot of times you don't pray when you should. And this is an interesting passage that seems to indicate sometimes God doesn't do certain things because we don't ask. But worse than that, he says, you ask and you don't receive because you're asking wrong. Because what you're praying for is you're praying for something that makes you feel good. You're praying for your own hedonistic pleasure. And, you know, often, and this is a the whole study of prayer and why we pray and how we pray is an interesting one. But for the most part, for most of us, most of our prayers are simply a honeydew list of what we want God to do to make the world more the way we think it ought to be. It's if you read the prayers in the Bible, they are so different than the prayers that we generally pray. And it's a, it's a stark contrast, really, when you see it. And it all comes down to this issue of who is God in your life? Who is in control? Does God know what he is doing or not? And he's going to develop that further here in the next several verses. But he's starting out by saying, first of all, you are under this impression that you know what's best for you, that you can basically, that prayer is your way of getting done what you want to get done. And often people talk about prayer like that, and it's no surprise that people have that impression. And we talk about the power of prayer, often in a sense, as if it's like, prayer is the way that I get to be in charge. Prayer is the way that I get to order up from God's menu what I want him to do and he does it. And we often talk about if we pray, then we're going to see this change and that change and this work and that not work. And James is saying there's a problem here because if what you're asking for is what feels good to you, don't you realize you don't even know what you want? So God is supposed to take all the power of the universe and put it at your disposal so that He lets you call the shots? I'm convinced that an awful lot of times what we are praying against is precisely what God has actually done in our lives. We realize that He has a purpose in what He has done, and we saw this over in James chapter 1 when when James talks about the fact that, you know, we have this struggle that's going on, and We don't realize that every good and perfect gift is from God, that he knows what he's doing. And James in that case says, ask for wisdom so you can figure out what God is doing in your life when you're in this trial. The fact that it's a trial comes from you, not from God, according to James chapter one. So now he's continuing with that idea and saying, do you really think that you know best? Is that what your prayers are like? The truth is, prayer is much more about us aligning ourselves with God than it is us twisting God's arm or giving Him a suggestion of something that He never thought of before. You can see this in the story in, in uh, the Old Testament of, of Jacob. Jacob was a con man from the word go, just a little sneak. His name means heel catcher, sneaky. And he rips his brother off of birthright. He rips him off of the blessing. He finally goes off and he lives with Laban. He gets conned by his uncle Laban, who also became his father-in-law, ultimately driven away from him. And now he's got to go back home and face his brother. And he's scared to death and he sends everybody else away. And he's like, I need a night alone. And he has this vision. And ultimately the angel of the Lord shows up, which I believe is a is an appearance of Jesus in the old testament but you can argue with me on that later but he wrestles with him and all night Jacob is not able to beat the angel of the lord but the angel of the lord isn't isn't really destroying Jacob either it's kind of a close match all night and finally the angel of the lord touched Jacob in his hip and and broke it and at that point all Jacob could do was hang on, and he just clutched onto the angel of the Lord, and he goes, I'm not going to let you leave until you bless me. And remember what the angel of the Lord said? He told Jacob, you know, it's good. A lot is going to change in your life right now. You're no longer called sneaky. I'm going to call you someone who is ruled by God, because today, tonight you have wrestled with God, and You won. You won. I don't feel like I won. Yes, because when you finally tap out against God, that's when you win. When you realize he's God and you allow him to do what he is going to do, it was the greatest victory that he could have ever had. Now, prayer is seen that way in a lot of cases in the Bible. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came in order to die for our sins. And he knew he was going to have to suffer and die. He had told the disciples he was going to have to do it. And yet he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating like drops of blood and he's crying, he's praying, and he's just going, God, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. And he prayed that several times. And then finally he said, but not my will, but yours be done. And ultimately that's the highest form of prayer that there probably is when you wrestle with him and you finally say, okay, we'll do it your way. I want to do what you want to do. Paul learned this over in 2 Corinthians. He talked about it. He had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, perhaps his eye problem that he had, but he said, I prayed three times that God would deliver me from the thorn in the flesh. And he said that God answered back, my grace is sufficient for you. Because when you are weak, my strength is perfected. And so Paul quit praying for it to be delivered. And instead, he said, so I am happy to have something that makes me weak if it makes God strong. What a huge victory in someone's life. But that's the issue, and that's what prayer is basically about. And that's why when you read in the Scriptures, all the prayers in the Bible, they're not about the things that we would pray about You know, uh, help me to get a job, help me not to be so sick, help me to get over this cold, help me to win the lottery, help me to, you know, get on American Idol. (laughs) Instead, all the prayers in the Bible are all character prayers. It's like, God, take what you're doing and make me what you want me to be. Help me to align myself with you, as he talks about here later. So basically, if your prayers are all about saying, God, here's what I want you to do, because this would feel really good. And I feel like this is a good idea. And God goes, I'm already doing what is a good idea. I know what to do. I'm God. I'm sovereign. I know what I'm doing. I'm not needing suggestions. What I need from you is for you to accept that I'm God. To do otherwise is to be prideful, is to want to play God and he just James makes it clear that's not what God's into. So he says if you're asking not if you're not asking you're wrong. And if you're asking wrong, and it's all about a feel good prayer, then that's wrong too. And he goes on and says adulterers and adulteresses, pretty severe. He's basically saying you're being unfaithful to God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god in other words it's bad enough that you are your own worst enemy that you have this conflict inside of you that you don't even know what you want or you want things that conflict he goes but not only that when you are not accepting god as god but you are deciding that you are the counselor to God. You're making yourself the enemy of God. So now in your life, you're not only fighting yourself, which leads you to fight others, but you're fighting against God. He's going, you wonder why life is tough? You're fighting God like Jacob was. You're not going to win that fight until you quit. When you quit, you win. And so then he says, Don't you know that the Scripture says, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now I could spend a bunch of time on this verse, but first of all, the the capital S in Spirit isn't in the original, that's just an interpretation. Most commentators don't believe that this is talking about the Spirit of God. It fits more with the context that it's talking about the human spirit. And so you can take it either way that you want. Another problem is this statement, it says the scriptures say it, but there is no place in the scriptures that really says this. So there are a bunch of different explanations. I'm not satisfied with any of them, but um, perhaps what he's doing is saying, come on, the Bible, the whole Old Testament is full of examples that demonstrate this truth and not a specific quote. But what the statement is is, the spirit who dwells in us, and just think with me for a moment that it's who you are inside, yearns, really desires, and the word jealously, the, 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 the word there is really the word that means to the point of ruin, to the point of damage. So if I'm correct about my um, translation here, and I am, uh, no. <laughs> I think I am, obviously, but you can, you can take any other translation or interpretation you want. But what he's saying is, don't you realize you've seen it throughout scriptures that that which is inside of us causes us to want to our own destruction, to our own damage, to our own, you know, frailty. It's we, we have this. There's this battle that's happening. But verse six. He gives more grace, therefore, he says, loosely quoting Proverbs 3, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now that kind of concludes the first section, which is the section about the battle that's in us. And I love that he says God gives more grace. Paul said where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. God's grace is always there. However wrung out you feel right now, and you go, man, this is exactly what's going on. I've been wrestling with my own mind, and then now I'm wrestling with others, and I realize now I'm wrestling with God. Oh, man. And he comes right in and says, but God has more grace than you have pride. God has more grace than you have sin. He will outgrace you every time. But notice it's God resists the proud And that's a part of his grace because he gives more grace. So even the fact that God is resisting you is a good thing. God's resisting you to try to break you of what's destroying you. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The humble is somebody who's pressed down, literally. So he says, God is God, knows what he's doing. You don't have to tell him what to do. But the good thing is, even when you are built up in your own pride, even when you are doing life your own way, even when you have been living your life by the maxim that this feels right, therefore I want to do it, and I want to make everybody else fall into line with what I feel. He says God's grace is still there. And a part of His grace is in resisting your pride. And again, you battle yourself, you battle others, Ultimately, your battle is against God when you're not letting God be God. And so James says, that's your problem. So if you had a rough week, you're kind of worn out, you're feeling like everything you do, you're running up against a wall, well, here's the problem. You're fighting yourself, you're fighting others, you're fighting God. And what God wants to do is to break you of that pride that is destroying you. And God is working in detailed ways in your life in order to try to make that happen. Where it says God resists the proud, the word there is anti-tasso. The word tasso in the Greek means to organize something, to come up with a structure or to arrange things. And so God is actually arranging things against your pride. He's going, I'm working against you And I have a million different ways to break you of your pride. And he really does. And sometimes if you think, why is this happening? It's just too weird. And often what we think is Satan's working overtime. Sometimes it's God. And we're like blaming it on Satan because we know if it's God, it's going to be what we want. And, you know, if it's not, it must be Satan. And he's going, no, God is very organized in getting in your way to break you of your pride. And we all need this because we need God. We don't need to be God at all. But now he gives, okay, so what do you do? Starting with verse 7, therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. This is a play on words from the previous verse. Remember I said that the word for God resists the proud is the word anti tasso, arrange against. Now this is the word submission is the word tasso which means to arrange under. Now we're familiar with that word because um, us men love the fact that it tells wives to submit to their husbands, um, just like God, like we're God. And uh, <laughs> And we don't, we don't like the fact that it says we need to submit one to another. But, you know, we like to have people submit to us. But here, the play on words is, God is arranging things against you. What you need to do is adjust your life to him. Hupotasso. It was a military term that they used in soldiers who were marching in formation. Now, when there's a formation, there isn't a right and wrong place to be. But what you're supposed to do is walk in straight lines with straight diagonals. And so simply when you're marching, if you're going to do a good job of it, if you're going to hoop-po-tasso yourself, what you do is you watch the people in front of you and make sure you're straight with them. You look out of the corner of your eye and you line yourself up with these and you check your diagonals and you line up there. If that's where you are, you're in line. And that's what this word potasso" means. What James is saying is, instead of coming up with your dream for life and then trying to get God and everybody else, manipulate everyone who's in your path, make this happen, you arrange it, you organize it, you bring it about, pray for it. He's going, instead, why don't you realize that God knows what he's doing? That God has a plan that he has been working in you and for you? And you line yourself up with what God is doing. Now, this is so simple, it should be almost too obvious for us. And yet, when you think about life, success ultimately comes because you make the best of the situation that you are in. I think we would all agree to that. I can't always change the situation I'm in, and I can never change what just happened or what happened last week, or what abilities I have, or whatever. I can fight against myself and try to be something that I'm not. I can try to get a little better and maybe make something work and fulfill my own dream. Or I can, I can, I can just rigidly accept reality and say, here's where I am, now where do I go from here? How do I make the best of what's going on. And a part of that has to do with the fact that I believe in God, that I don't believe that I got where I am by chance, that I believe that even the things that have happened to me because of my own stupidity, that God was working through those, that that was a part of his plan to ultimately bless me and to do what's best for me. And I don't know what's best for me. I want God's best for me. And so here he's just going, you know what? Line yourself up with God. The Bible has so much to say about responsibility and responsibility is the ability to respond. And that's what will determine so much of what's going to happen in your life is how well do you respond to the situation that you're in? In other words, okay, where are we now? Where do we go from here? It's a great thing about a GPS. You cannot pay attention to it and be in the middle of nowhere, and then you turn it on and it says, here's where you are. And now you tell it, give me directions to go where I want to go, and that's what God wants to do. But often, pridefully, we don't even want to check a GPS, because I can sense where we are. I know it has to be that way. That darn GPS is wrong again. It has to be. There's no way. Boy, it was Driving in Ireland when we were over there on vacation, we had a GPS but it wasn't real reliable and I was always convinced that the GPS was wrong and I was right. But what James is saying is, you know what? Deal with where you are in relationship to God and keep yourself lined up with Him. Give God some credit and believe that everything you don't like in your life isn't just something where God messed up And he's waiting for you to pray so he can change it. Maybe God knows what he's doing. Maybe he's working in ways that you don't expect. Maybe a part of it is to knock the pride out of you that's ruining your life. So submit to God. Line up with him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, we like this idea of resisting the devil. And generally we do it in our flesh. Generally, we want to do it as we think it's some aggressive thing. It's a it's a clause that's subservient to submitting to God. The idea is, and the word for resist the devil is is two words. It's the word histamine, which is to stand, and 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 um, and uh, anti, which is against, and it's saying stand against the devil. By the way, the word antihistamine is the same word. Stand against something. Now. So here he is saying, if you will line yourself up with God, you are resisting the devil. See, what the devil is trying to do, what he wants you to do is just what he does. Walk in your pride. Do what seems like a good idea at the time. Make your choices irrespective of whether or not it's something in which the Spirit of God is leading you. And he goes, the only way that you can resist the devil is by submitting to God by lining yourself up with him. And so he says, you do that, he'll run. See, what brought the devil down was the desire to follow his feelings. He thought it would feel good to do what he did. It didn't work. But he is devoting himself to trying to get everybody else to think that that was a good idea too. And it's not. It's a bad idea. But he'll flee when you submit to God. And then he says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The word there for draw near is the word that literally means to squeeze. It's saying, hang on to God. Just get a hold on him. And, and like Jacob, after he wrestled with the angel, just got him in a chokehold and said, I'm not letting you go. Draw that close to God. Pull him in, squeeze him, and he'll do the same for you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Often we don't know how close he is to us. And so we're thinking, God, you're nowhere to be found. I don't know where you are. And he says, I've been doing all kinds of stuff in your life. It was things you really needed, but you don't see it and you don't get it. And so everything I do for you, you're praying that I'll take it away. No, draw near to God as you submit to him. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Admit. This is wrong. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Dipsuchos is the word there. It literally means you have two souls. Again, that's the whole thing. Who, who am I? Well, it depends. I go back and forth. I want this. I want that. They conflict. I don't get it. He goes, let's simplify things a little bit. Just stop it. Admit you don't want to live that way. And lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He said, even if, you, if it's working and you've been able to make yourself happy by manipulating people around you and taking advantage of enough others that they get sick of fighting with you, so now they're doing it your way. He goes, why don't you realize, why don't you recognize, no, this isn't smart. This isn't the way I need to live. There's a time to just cry over what you've done to yourself. There's a time to be repentant. Now, he's going to lead us past that point, but he's saying some of the people who think right now they're on the top of the world just needs to admit, no, I'm not God. No, I don't know best. You know what? I'm wrong a lot. And then he goes on and says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up or he will elevate you. That word for humble yourselves, it means to be pressed pressed down, or dip, that's why we talk about depression as being somebody who just feels terrible about themselves. That's not God's um, description of it, but it's a, it's a word that's in what in the Greek they call it the passive voice. Humble yourselves isn't really the best translation because it, humble yourselves sounds like it's something that you're doing to yourself, And in the Greek, that would, well, there's an active voice, a passive voice, and a middle voice. Sorry if I'm boring you. This won't take long, but it's an important point. Active voice is, I am doing the action. So I threw the ball, that's active. Um, If I'm sitting out there and somebody throws a ball and it hits me, the ball hit me, the action was done to me, that's, that's that passive voice. And then the middle voice is, i threw it up and hit myself and so yourself is involved this is this is a command it's imperative but it's also passive which what he's saying is let god humble you that would be the the most accurate translation here let god humble you let it happen let him press you down in the sight of god and he will lift you up. The word there means to elevate you. It refers to going up in, like an elevator, but going up into the sky even would would be this word that's used. So he says initially, the problem is you've got to battle in inside you, you're battling with others, and your battle is ultimately often against God. What you need to do is line yourself up with God, accept things as they are, as being from God's hand, and then let him press you down when it's necessary. John the Baptist made that great expression when he saw Jesus and he said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's the same thing that James is saying here is I, I have to stop playing God. I have to stop thinking that I am the judge of what's right and wrong. And he's going to go on, we're going to see him later talking about judging others and stuff. It's really interesting. But here he's just going, God is pressing you down. God is limiting you. He has reasons why he doesn't always make you feel good. Now, let him do that and trust him. And he says, trust me, that'll work out really well for you that will end up elevating you. The earlier word for pride is a word that literally means to shine above and that's what we all try to do. We want to shine, we want to we want to be up in a lofty place, but we we do it contrary to what God's doing in our lives and it just doesn't work very well. He's saying what you need to do is accept what's happening in your life as being from the hand of God and he has ways of elevating you much better than you could ever imagine or dream of. He knows what's going to bless you the most. He knows what's going to be best for you. And so James says, you guys get this, understand this, recognize this, that your problem has to do with you being unclear as to who gets to be God. And so if you will let go of that and go, okay, God, I guess you know what you're doing. Now I'm going to make the best of the choices that I have to make within my sphere of influence and control. And I'm going to let you work and you be God and I'll take whatever you got going, whatever's going to happen, and I'm going to trust you to elevate me because I've tried elevating myself. It just doesn't go well. And so for all of us, he would confront us, and it's sometimes difficult to admit pride, because almost always when we're pride, we mean well, and we want win-win. We want to win and make everybody else win too, and somehow we think that we know how to get there, and that is what stands between us and what God wants to do in our lives. That pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride doesn't work. And it ends up messing everything up. We don't know what's best. God does. He is working. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we need to repent of the fact that an awful lot of our energy is burned up praying that God will stop doing what he's decided to do. Trying to change God's mind. Instead of going, okay, God, this is what you have for me. It's fine. You're God. I'm not. I'm going to make the best of whatever it is that you do. I'm going to align myself with your purposes. And if you need to press me down for a while, if you need to downsize me before you elevate me, you know best, I don't. Great, great reminder. And as he goes on in the rest of this chapter next week, you'll see that he develops this thought further. But this is important stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. (laughs) Most of us sit here and think about how other people here really need this. But Lord, personalize it for us. We all have a pride problem. We all have conflicts that are our own doing that start within ourselves and that come from us not letting you be God. Lord, whatever you need to do, to give us humility. By faith and knowing your grace and your love, we make ourselves available for you to press us. If it's necessary for you to put some pressure on us in order to teach us to cling to you, then we want that. We want you to be God. We want to line up with you. So Lord, please help us to humbly submit to you and to acknowledge your right to run our lives. Deliver us from our obsession that we have with feeling good and help us instead to be satisfied with what you have for us right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.